Hello and welcome to Story Radio. Today we're talking to Tracy Rose Payton about her debut novel, Night Wherever We Go. Tracy, welcome to Story Radio. Hi, how are you? Tracy studied at the Missioner Centre for Writers at the University of Texas, Austin, and her short fiction has been published in Guernica, Prairie Schooner, and a compilation of the Best American Short Stories 2021. Her debut novel, Night Wherever We Go, has just been published by Borough Press and examines the lives of six enslaved women on a struggling Texas plantation just before the Civil War. Tracy, I found Night Wherever We Go a gripping and moving read. Could you tell us a little about how it came about? Sure. Um, I was uh, reading a historical social history <laughs> uh, book called When and Where I Enter. Um, it's by uh, Paula Giddings. Um, and it's a social political history of black women in America. And in it, she has a chapter on resistance under enslavement. And one of the things she focuses on, in addition to things like work sabotage or kind of more overt armed resistance, is um, what historians now call gynecological resistance. Um, and that basically means like using kind of herbal abortives to control fertility or reproduction. And so in it, she includes like this story of a group of women on a I say a plantation in Tennessee, but technically it's hard to say because it was a Tennessee it was a Tennessee Medical Journal, <laughs> which means I'm not exactly sure um, where it was happening in America. But anyway, the story was that four to six women were kind of kept on this farm, and over the course of twenty years, only two children were born. Um, every child would any kind of pregnancy would kind of miscarry by the fourth month, and even when the slaveholder kind of swapped out one or two of the women, the birth rate remained unchanged. And so 20 years in, uh, the slaveholder found out that it was kind of an old woman who was kind of giving the younger woman um, an herbal, quote unquote, remedy. Um, and so this case was discussed at a medical conference. And that's how kind of we know about it, because it was kind of documented in this medical journal. And it was kind of part of these conversations that doctors were having among themselves about um, what to be alert for, <laughs> because they were being employed by slaveholders to kind of figure out what was happening and why, um, in some cases, women weren't kind of producing children in the way that kind of slaveholders felt they should be, or at the rate that slaveholders felt they should be. Right. Uh, so the medical conference was back sort of in 1860s or something, was it? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah, 1850s, that's, I would say. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, um, I thought something that was very striking about the novel was the level of detail that you've had and um, it really kind of gives, gives the narrative a very strong feel of authenticity and you cite a lot of um, source material. I just wonder what, what your approach to the research was. Did you kind of do masses of research before you started or did you kind of just kind of uh, find things as you needed them? Yeah, I mean, I would say yes. like this, this novel has been one in the making for a long time, um, probably at least a decade, I'd say. Um, and I would say probably initially I just read a lot, um, and wrote a draft or two of the novel. And then when I went to grad school, um, in 2016, 2017, (laughs) um, I threw out that draft and I started over. And one of the reasons I did that was because, um, I got inspired by Texas. Like I moved to grad school for Texas before the novel had been set in Georgia, since that's where my family's from. Um, and that's the place I have most, um, 
I think a most more kind of true relationship, I guess, in terms of having a relationship with the American South, since I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in Chicago. Um, and so for a long time, it was set in Georgia, since that's kind of what I think of. I think of like, you know, the, the house that my grandfather, you know, built or, um, you know, the land that my grandmother and her siblings were raised on. Um, and so, um, but when I moved to Texas, um, I got very inspired by Texas. Texas has a very um, strong regional identity in a way that a lot of other places in America kind of don't have <laughs> in a certain kind of way. Um, uh, and I got very interested in trying to understand why I never think of Texas as part of the story of slavery in America. Um, and so the more I kind of read about Texas and how Texas kind of came to be and how it joined the Union and, you know, like it's, it's transition from being a part of Mexico to being part of the United States, um, slavery was very much a part of that story. And it just felt like, oh, okay, this is a story I haven't. This is a, another layer to this that I feel like is more kind of underexplored. Yeah, there's always a danger with research that you kind of just endlessly do research and never actually get on with the writing, isn't there? It's a great yeah, way to prevaricate. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yes. Um, herbal remedies uh, to be used in childbirth for contraception or for unwanted pregnancies form an important part of the narrative. I had no idea women had so much control over their fertility at this sort of time in history. Were you aware of this before you researched the book or was it new to you? Um, I'd, yeah, I'd say that was new to me. I, I would say that, that that probably came about from the original um, kind of um, anecdote. And then kind of going, like, you know, as we talked about the rabbit hole of research, um, especially even in that, that piece in the medical journal, um, where I think there's another historian who kind of maps out all of these different kind of conversations that were happening and all the different things that women were using at the time, you know, tansy and rue and camphor. Um, and so there are all these herbs that women were using based on where they were to try to maintain some type of control. Um, at the same time, we had midwives who a lot of times people would go to the midwife for help um, with either, you know, that or contraception, <laughs> um, some type of like, you know, lambskin or, or anything. So the history of that to me was super fascinating. Um, and even just learning that, um, which I think also happens in the novel where, you know, that there were services that, you know, women would, would, would you know, that there were little advertisements in the paper for something that would help, <laughs> that women would kind of write to this company and send them some money and that this medication or, or whatever this quote unquote remedy would happen in the mail, uh, would come in the mail. And it's interesting to think through some of that stuff. And of course, it's hard to know how uh, effective some of these things were. Um, and I probably, and it's hard for, for me even to overstate, even though the book kind of centers around that particular conflict, I think also you think about women who were overworked and malnourished, where there was a lot of miscarriage anyway, just because by the nature of um, the labor, the backbreaking labor people were doing and not getting enough to eat. So, um, but it's also very true that you can read in the accounts of enslaved people that, um, that women were more and more aware of their fertility and taking control of it and there are narratives where you see people talking about how often women were chewing cotton root um and women who were kind of determined that they wouldn't have children in their enslavement that they were going to wait for emancipation whenever that happened and they would only try to have free children and so um and not that that was of course without consequence there of course there are consequences for being barren you're often more likely quote-unquote sold um but it's interesting to think about that these are not you know, I think people like to think these are new conversations or what, especially what's happening in America now is a new phenomenon and it's not. It's a very long, <laughs> long history um, of, um, of you know, reproduction and women being kind of um, trying to control the forces of their own reproduction. 
I'm, I was very impressed by the uh, the dialogue in, in the book. It sounds so natural and convincing, um, but it must be tricky as well to make it historical and yet so sort of immediate. How did you approach doing that? Um, that that's, thank you, that's great to hear. Um, I feel like dialogue is not a strong point of mine. And so I feel like, you know, anything that you feel like is a weakness, you try to pay more attention to. <laughs> um, I think I'm inspired by a lot of playwrights um, and was fortunate to be in a grad program that had a mix of playwrights and poets. And I feel like being around them helped me kind of like focus on different things. Like the poets would teach me things that like, you know, think about language and think about the line in a certain way. And being around playwrights helped me kind of really just think through the dialogue and how much that they're able to do with dialogue in a short space. Um, so yeah, it just made me want to be sharper and try to figure out ways to be, um, just more effective with <laughs> with the craft of dialogue in a way that I just feel like I've, I've, I've struggled with in the past. I thought your use of um, point of view was very interesting. Um, the use of uh, first person plural is quite unusual. We're never really sure who the I is within the we. Um, and yeah, quite a lot of sections I thought, oh, this has gone to third person, but then the we sort of then emerges and you realize you actually are still in that point point of view um how did you find writing in this point of view and what how did you find yourself using it yeah I feel like the we came late um I've had to say early drafts of the of the novel um don't include that um I think the we kind of I feel like for me I've, and I know it's a contentious thing I feel like I've I've made the mistake of looking at my Goodreads reviews and it's very contentious <laughs> people either love it or hate, <laughs> hate it um, which I, which I, you know, I accept, I respect that. <laughs> um, I think about the we as kind of a collective consciousness of the women, um, because I was really interested in this tension between a group of women who's being treated as a unit. Um, I'm also, of course, interested in the way I feel like people talk about the American slave experience as a very kind of monolithic, flat experience, or they talk about the slave community as a monolithic kind of flat experience of, you know, people who were you know, quote unquote, either docile or people who were all Christians or people who were all, uh, you know, more similar than not. And I think there's a lot of, I think historians now doing a lot of work on kind of trying to puncture that myth. Um, and the we to me was one way to do that, to kind of talk about, to look at like the ways in which we're kind of joined together. We're kind of forced to operate as a unit. We're forced to live together, but we're forced to live together even whether we like it or not. Um, we're basically strangers. We actually don't know each other. Um, and the ways in which that creates both, I think, cohesion and unity and community, but the ways in which that also creates just tension and frustration and friction, as it would with anybody, as it does in any, you know, family, found family, group of people who are kind of thrown together. <laughs> mm. um, and so, yes, yeah, so I was interested in a way to explore that tension. I think the other, the other thing I think I was interested in and I say this often that I was kind of very inspired by the novel, uh, Buddha in the Attic, uh, Julia Atsuka's novel about um, Japanese picture brides coming to America. Um, and I love, it's one of my favorite things in the world. Um, and she explores the we and with a rotating they, which is brilliant. Like every chapter that they rotate, like sometimes it's the children, sometimes it's, you know, the white people that they come in contact with. It's sometimes it's the husbands. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> hmm. um, but what I liked about, but to me, what I liked about maybe trying to incorporate a device like that is that 
I think one of the things I'm cognizant of in writing about this period is that I often call it kind of a trick mirror of history where people come to the particular story of American slavery as if they, as if they know it fully. Um, and one of the ways to be to destabilize that is kind of to destabilize it with craft in a way. And um, there are a number of ways I think I'm trying to destabilize that. I think by you know, being in Texas, focusing on women, a number of things, but I feel like craft is just another way to kind of destabilize that, to hopefully push the reader to engage with the text and the material and the place and the women um, as they are in the novel and not necessarily with the image they might have in their head, which might be, you know, Gone with the Wind or Roots or any of these things that I think are kind of American pop culture that have kind of created a particular kind of fixed image of what um, that institution is or was or could have been. Yeah, I, I would have expected it to become quite wearing for the reader, but actually I think the way you are able to kind of shift away so it is almost like third person actually means it doesn't doesn't at all get wary and um, yeah I thought it really worked well. Magic and the supernatural play a huge part in the novel and the women draw a lot of strength from this um, it's one aspect of the novel I find really fascinating can you tell us more about the beliefs of the characters they they have they come from different places in terms of their religions and um, beliefs and some characters change their beliefs through, through the novel as well. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think I was interested in, I think in that, again, when you throw a number of people, <laughs> you, throw, you throw a group of strangers together, um, you know, that one of the things that often separates people sometimes, or sometimes unites people, is their faith. And I was interested in all the different ways where, again, like I said, I feel like there is the kind of this kind of idea that, that people were, you know, by and large Christians, and sure, you know, people were, <laughs> or, or a percentage of people were. Um, but I think even historians are kind of shipping away that the majority of people were Christian. I mean, if you're coming from countries that were Muslim, or um, or you were practicing um, different African spirit ways based on, you know, the region of Africa that you came from, um, you came with a whole set of beliefs, and those beliefs didn't disappear kind of once you got to America. Um, so yeah, exploring the tensions of community that, and then some of the, okay, where I think I have a character who's Catholic, who of course is like, she's, um, you know, born and raised in Louisiana. And so she's um, influenced by the Catholicism there and by the Catholicism of her master at that time. And so exploring the different ways where, you know, folks can be Catholic, you know, can be Catholic or Muslim. Um, they can, and I think the other thing, of course, I was interested in, which shows up a lot in the novel is, um, the practice of conjure or hoodoo, which is distinct and different from what sometimes people think of as voodoo, which is, you know, a different religion kind of based in Haiti. Um, whereas hoodoo is more like a practical magic and people often practice that alongside Christianity. Um, and you'll see a lot of remnants of that in black Southern culture. Like I would say, even talking to, talking about these with my, with, with my, with my own mother who would not describe, you know, her mother or her, her, or her, you know, her mother or, practices of the community where they were very strictly Christian, but that there were things that they believed that were connected to, you know, conjure or folk magic, you know, that people have the power to to do you harm, you know, by getting, you know, hold of your hair, or getting hold of your blood or any of these things. And that that there are other forces at play than just what we can see. Yes, I thought the uh, scenes where they, the women are, go to the tree in the swamp were just wonderfully powerful, you know, very um, sort of, one of the few spaces where they get to be themselves kind of away from other people's kind of interference and control. Um, it's very moving. 
Um, the the novel is set just before the Civil War, and the mood shifts at about the halfway point. We kind of sense the coming battles, although we never actually really reach the conflict. Did you always set the novel at this point in time? Actually, no, I didn't. <laughs> um, I would say earlier drafts of the novel were probably more in a, and for me, I would say in an amorphous kind of 1830s. Um, but I think the more I got kind of connected to Texas, the more I became interested in, like, I think you can't tell the Pacific story of a slavery in Texas without thinking about the kind of latter half of of that movement where where you had you know people moving from the from the higher south to the lower south and all that's kind of being driven by industrialization and by the demand for cotton and cotton mills in England um and so the industrialization of cotton kind of really starts to kind of shift everything and that's when you kind of get um and and then plus you know the close of the trade whatever ah, sorry <laughs> many, many many details but I will say um I think the more I read about Texas, the more I got inspired by, there was a series of, I feel like every few years they would have what they, what they called like kind of these hysterias or slave panics where, um, and there was, and so the one I tapped into is the one right before the Civil War, 8th, 1859, 1860. Um, but there was another like maybe five years before that. Um, and every few years, everyone would kind of, um, you would have all these communities that would get into this kind of hysteria that all their slaves were going to revolt on Christmas Day or all their slaves were going to revolt on Election Day. Um, And to me, it just kind of spoke to kind of the panic, the constant friction and tension of the institution where the people, that people were scared, the white people were scared all the time. (laughs) And it just felt like that was something I just, yeah, I just wanted to explore that more. The more I read about it, the more interesting it was. Um, And even though I would say historians argue about what things were legitimate in terms of like, you know, how many of them were legitimate revolts that were then kind of found out and discovered, or how many of them were things that were manufactured by Confederate newspaper editors <laughs> um, in the South who were trying to sell papers. Um, it's hard to say, um, but I still think it's an interesting tension and it tells us a lot about what people were thinking about, about people's paranoia, about people's suspicions about the institution and what they were doing. Um, yeah, that just felt like a really kind of rich place to tap into. Yeah, I mean, the loose the looses can obviously really feel the change coming and, you know, they're kind of very scared by it, aren't they? It's, um, did you find that the material you were kind of encountering changed your own racial politics or was it just stuff that you were so aware of anyway that um, it didn't have a lot of impact? Um, I would say, yeah, I wouldn't say anything changed, like, I guess racial politics is because, you know... Racial politics in America are very <laughs> um, uh, entrenched, I would say. And so um, so I wouldn't say any, there has been any uh, shift there. Um, uh, I would say if, maybe if any shift at all, it would just be around, I think just learning the kind of stories of like midwives and like how they were involved and how closely they were involved in communities. And I think I learned from my own mom that like, she and most of her siblings, with the exception of her youngest brother, were all delivered by midwife. Um, and I just thought that was kind of interesting um, because I, I would say in America, um, black midwives especially were kind of pushed out of the American medical field around, I would say, maybe around the 1970s. Um, so those kind of pieces of like having a late midwife in your community who has a relationship to you and your family, um, who is somebody you could kind of go to for medical assistance and help, I think think kind of learning about that just kind of put into perspective a lot of the kind of 
things that are happening in America now and I would say and have been happening as far as like maternal mortality rates, um, particularly kind of um, lack of support for new moms. Um, and so seeing that like, okay, when we, when we lost this piece um, of the puzzle that had a real, real impact and it has continued to have an impact on us for a very long time. Yes, she's such a powerful figure, isn't she? The midwife. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I loved I loved the symbol of her her stick with the um, numbers of the babies that she's helped um, bring into the world. That was a, a lovely image. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting that um, women's fertility is still a po big political issue in America. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think I think that's the other thing to me that it's interesting. Like I. I didn't expect to write a book that was timely, <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I would say I think I was always inspired by the current moment, um, and I was, and I would say the current moment then was was different, but it was still. I mean, you could kind of, you know, but you could see this moment coming. You know, going into a Planned Parenthood was like, you know, it still is, but you know, going it was like going to Fort Knox. I remember going the first time I went. I think when I was maybe like twenty four or twenty five, and it's like a big glass, you know, you know, fortress. <laughs> Um, that you have to walk through these two security, whatever, to get through, you know, just to, you know, get your, you know, little appointment for your exam. Um, and I think it just made me interested in that and the long history of, from everything from eugenics to forced sterilization. So the state has always been interested in who mothers and who doesn't and who has children and who doesn't. And I think it just kind of puts in relief again, like that this is a long road and that that fight is never over. <laughs> um, and it just continues in different forms. Could you tell us a bit about your writing process? Do you share early drafts with other people? Do you do you plan extensively, or or do you find the story develops as you go along? Or um, I would say I probably do a little bit of both. Um, I do typically have a plan just because it helps with my anxiety. <laughs> um, but I give myself freedom and space to move away from the plan. So, you know, for that day, I know I'm going to write this scene that's part of this section where X, Y, and Z is supposed to happen. Um, you know, like that's, that's the goal. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then if like, you know, something better comes along in the space or characters kind of go off in their own direction, I'll, you know, I'll let them do that. Um, but yeah, I think having a plan, it's having a plan for me is helpful. I, I, you know, I have friends who don't have plans and they just kind of go where the novel takes them and they figure that out where the novel's going through their drafting process and that, it feels terrifying to me. <laughs> and um, how have you found the process of being published? Has it been kind of what you expected or has it been very different? Um, it's great, it's interesting. I think it's, um, I think it's a little destabilizing. <laughs> um, I think for new authors, um, I think in the sense that you know, I think one of the things I kind of talk about sometimes is, you know, these characters have been with me so long, you know, I've been with them, you know, at least a decade. And so, um, and that I think once I kind of finished the book and turned in my last round of edits that I was kind of cranky for a while and I didn't know why I was cranky. And I was like, and I'm pretty much typically a person who's pretty even, like in typically, typically in good spirits, I'd say. Um, and so I was just in a really bad mood for like a month. And I was like, what is going on with you? And I was like, oh, right. Yes. You don't have, <laughs> you know. You don't have the book. You don't have these like women that you spend time with every day, um, and I think yeah. So that was kind of that was destabilizing and shocking to me in a way that I didn't expect. I think like initially you're just like oh, I'm just gonna be so glad to be done. I can finally take a break, and it's like oh no, but it's actually 
there's something very, um, I think, stabilizing about a long project like a novel. And I think especially during the pandemic, I think it's very anchoring. Um, and so to be without the anchor, you just kind of feel unmoored for a little bit. Which probably, probably makes the next question slightly obnoxious, uh, Tracy. But what what projects are you working on next? Or are you just having a, a well-earned break and... and um before you you move on to the next project? I, I would probably say I'm in the break. Yeah. <laughs> probably in the break. Um, I think just because I think some of the promotion stuff, like I think I haven't figured out the the balance of like, oh, okay, I have a day job and then there's book promotion stuff and then I should be working on something new and I just haven't figured out the right balance for those things yet. Um, and so, which is, you know, a good problem to have, but I just, I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's it's been it's such a wonderful novel. Um, I strongly recommend all our listeners go out and and buy this one. It's it's magnificent. Um, it's been wonderful to speak to you. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's, been so, it's so lovely to be here with you. When we became we, Texas country was still new, only a few years old in the union. Navarro County was known as a land of wheat but dreams of cotton. Corn was a sure business, but men like Mr. Lucy came to Texas with cotton on the brain and dragged us along to make sure the land would yield. He had been unlucky before, we knew from Junie, because she had been with the Lucys the longest. She had worked for Mrs. Lucy before she was a missus, then was carried off to Wilkes County, Georgia, where she worked field after worn out field as the couple's debt grew and grew. And she told us how they packed up and left in the dead of night to outwit angry creditors that threatened to seize what little he had left. By then, all Mr. Lucy had between him and Shira Ruin was 30 worthless acres and three slaves. They took to the road and two wagons stuffed to the gills with furniture, clothes, crockery, and seeds, the Lucys fighting all the while, their two small children screaming in fits. Harlow droned on about a vision from God, about a land of plenty, while his wife called him a fool with foolish ways, her pitch increasing with every mud hole, every windstorm, every feverish river of dirty water. God's favor would surely shine upon them, Harlow assured her. But when their two male slaves were seized and held at the trader's office in New Orleans for outstanding debts, Junie wondered if Lucy, Lizzie was right all along. She knew she had only been spared a place in the trader's pen because on paper, Junie belonged to Lizzie, a dower slave held in trust for Lizzie's children. Junie never told us much about the two men who had been seized if they were kith or kin, and if that was the reason she didn't work in the house for Miss Lizzie anymore. Instead, she told us about the tavern in New Orleans, where they stayed for a couple of nights, how she sat on the back steps outside the kitchen, eating a bowl of bland rice, while the men's voices drinking and carousing inside carried out into the alley, how she was listening for Harlow's voice to hear how he might go about retrieving the two men and how long that might take. He was sitting at a table a few feet away from the door, downing beer with his uncle Pap, a Louisiana merchant. And she wondered how long Pap would continue bragging before he offered to pay Harlow's debt. But that offer never came. Instead, Pap told him, start fresh. Take what you have left and invest in women. They are cheaper than men and more versatile. They can not only pull a plow and clear land, but can cook and clean too. And best of all, they can breed increasing a master's profit year over year every time a child is born. But be careful, boy, about using your own seed, the man warned. Out there, you'll want hardier stock, 
and while half free girls fetch top dollar down here outside Orleans, you can hardly get two nickels for them. At the market in Louisiana, Harlow asked us all the same questions. Had we born children before? How many? And had those children survived? In the back rooms of the auction houses where they pulled dresses up to the neck, squeezed breasts, thumped hips, examined teeth, more questions were asked about the history of our wounds. Our previous owners or the brokers that negotiated for them were asked about our health. Were we without a venereal disease or tumor? Were we verifiably sound? And would a doctor certify to that fact? Harlow was teased about his need for certification, while the rest of the planners assured him they could read a slave body like a book to determine with their bleary eyes and grubby callous hands all one needed to know. Alice, Sarah, and Lulu were acquired there, along with patients and her young son, Silas. Nan, having been in Texas prior to the war with Mexico, was picked up in Houston. Too old to be a breeding woman, he was told, but a good cook and doctoring woman, which he figured he would need out in the wilds of the upcountry, where the land was supposed to be better, albeit remote. But like us, the land proved finicky. Nothing grew sure or full under one bout of unrelenting sun after another. Cotton buds fell off the plants, the bulbs never growing full size, or they rotted with too much rain. The corn planted early survived, while the lay corn withered. And so far, not a new babe born among us. That was Tracy Rose Payton reading from Night Wherever We Go, published by Borough Press. This episode was produced by Martin Nathan. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not consider supporting us on Patreon? You can find us at www.patreon.com slash storyradio slash. Thanks for listening and please stay in touch.